Hallelujah. There are a lot of people with various kinds of sicknesses, so we'll be a light crowd. Does anybody have a testimony they want to tell before I start praying here? Hallelujah. Well, I've seen the Lord do like amazing things, one thing after another, for the last two days, and I'm like, whoa, God. Uh, so, but they're not my testimonies, I can't tell them. <laughs> I don't want to be sued. Anyway. Uh, oh, Lord, your faithfulness. Your faithfulness. Your faithfulness. Lord, we call on your name tonight for Bill Childress, our friend. And we ask you to continue to set him free. We ask you to drive the infection out of his knee, out of his leg. We pray, Lord, you will advance on it with your fire. Lord, we can see how infection tries to advance with fire or other things like flu and all this stuff tries to advance with fire. But Lord, you have fire that advances against fire. You, ha you can make a fire line with your Holy Spirit and your spirit of healing is fire. And Lord, we pray tonight that you will visit Bill Childress with the spirit of fire. That you'll give him the spirit of burning. That, you <laughs> that you'll do a wonder in his life. We're asking you for it. We want to hear testimony of how he uh, recovered because you visited him. Visit him, Lord. Encounter him moment by moment. Let the power of your Holy Spirit be manifested to build children's in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Anything else y'all want to pray for before I... Hallelujah. Oh, bless me. Yes, thank you, God. Drive everything out of my body that's trying to advance on me. Because... Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. Oh, I'm sure. Do you want the worms, God? <laughs> mm -hmm. Thank you, Father. Lord, your word says in the second psalm, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? Lord, I pray that all of the raging in our country, all of the divisiveness, all of the war that seems to advance on us, we pray that the peace of God that passes understanding will advance on that. Lord, we pray tonight for our country. We pray for this impeachment trial. We pray for your lordship to be manifested in there. We pray that the majesty of Jesus will be manifested in that uh, place, in the physical place, among the people, and we pray that you will do what you want to do. Do what you do, Lord. Do what you do, Lord. Lord, your word says we make our plans, but you do what you want to do. You said you make, you, we make our plans, but the Lord determines the way. And so, Lord, all the plans that are being laid out all the way around, you determine the way. <laughs> do what you do, Lord. Our hearts are before you. We stand before you on behalf of our country for the life of the Holy Spirit to be manifested and for you to move and glorify your own name in our country. In Jesus' name. Yes, it does. <laughs> Yes, yes. Yes, Lord. Yes. Yes, we declare at the cross as the final. Yes. Yes. Yes, we do. 
We stand in that place. Yes, we stand in that place. We stand in the place of intercession. Yes, we stand in the place. Yes, Lord. We stand in the place. Yes. Yes. You do only do wondrous things. We stand in the place of intercession. You said you were looking everywhere to find somebody who would stand in the gap and be an intercessor before you. And we say yes to you right now to stand in the gap. And we stand in the gap for our country. Oh, God. <laughs> Your kingdom come on earth like it is in heaven. Thine is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory. Like it is in heaven, your kingdom come. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Any other? Uh... Oh, good. Wonderful. Oh, yeah. And around there, yeah. Well, I kind of imagined it based on my Ph.D. in infections. <laughs> I thought, Lord, Lord, why know about this? Oh, Father, hey, yes, Jesus. I'm glad you're here, Pastor, Sister Pastor. I'm going to harangue you with the Moravians tonight. You're going to love. You're going to love me big for this. <laughs> Hallelujah! I want to talk about the Moravian revival. <clears throat> the Lord's been speaking to me and dealing with me out of Joel chapter two, and I don't want to say a whole lot about that because then I'll get totally off into that, but. The promise that he's given, that he's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh, that that promise is our promise. We've got that for a promise. And so uh, we get started in the spirit. Paul said, did y'all start out in the spirit? Now you're going to be made perfect by the flesh. So we get started in the spirit, and then it's kind of like a, a natural prog process of things to be made just to start rolling more and more over into the flesh. And so the Lord is calling us to be more intense in prayer, more intentional, excuse me, about prayer. So I want to talk to you about the, a little bit about the Moravian revival. And hopefully I can go kind of fast. Um... The background of the Moravian revival, God said, it will come to pass that I will pour. So I want to just pare down that verse. It will come, this is Joel 2. It will come to pass that I will pour. It will come to pass that I will pour. This was his promise through the prophet Joel. The first fulfillment of this promise was on the day of Pentecost. There's nothing in the New Testament to indicate that this was to be the one and only fulfillment of this promise. It shall come to pass that I will pour. There is nothing in the New Testament that says this is the only place that he will pour. And so... When we're looking for revival, we're looking for him to pour. And we're asking for revival. We're asking for the fulfilling again and again and again of that promise. It will come to pass that I will pour. And so the first fulfillment of this promise on the day of Pentecost, and there's nothing in the New Testament to indicate some one and only time. On the contrary, we read in the book of Acts, there were many outpourings. So I'm going to give you a resource, a book, Randy Clark's book. I think it's fairly new I don't know it's called there is more and so he talks he talks about that very thing that there is more sorry that the poor the outpouring is not you know about Heidi Baker she had the outpouring come on her when she was a young girl and then she had the outpouring come again, and then she's had the outpouring come again. And so we've 
like, oh, I had this outpouring, we had this outpouring. Uh, we've had outpourings here, and individuals have had outpourings, but God has a promise over us that it will come to pass that he will pour. And we will have, pour, we will have the Spirit poured on us again. I'm going to have the Spirit poured on me again. I don't know exactly when or how or whatever, but I know one thing. I'm locking down like a heat-seeking missile because it's God's promise and His desire to pour out His Spirit and to pour it out not just one time, but again and again and again. So in the Moravian Revival, I want to talk to you about that. Uh, in the history of the Moravians, on the 13th day of August, 1727, there was a day of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, where this historian says, We saw the hand of God and his wonders, and we were under the cloud our fathers were baptized in with the Spirit. The Holy Ghost came on us in those days, and great signs and wonders took place in our midst. From that time, scarcely a day passed that we did not see his almighty workings among us. Oh, God, give me a little splash here and a little splash. God, visitation, habitation, move in on us, pour out your spirit. Sorry, I, I really don't have the strength to be breathed. From that time, scarcely a day passed that we did not see his almighty workings among us. A great hunger after the word of God took possession of us, and we had three meetings a day for preaching. <laughs> three services a day. Um, and so how this started, this is in Germany. And y'all are familiar, some of you are familiar with the history, but I just want to refresh it and I want to point out certain things about the history. Zinzendorf was a man who had a heart after the Lord. Uh, after he finished college... He did what young men in Europe did. He was an aristocrat. He was a count. And so he did what young uh, men of means did in Europe when he finished college. He toured Europe. He was going around. So he was in a museum. And uh, in this museum, art gallery it is, at Dusseldorf, he saw the image of Jesus with, crown of, with a crown of thorns standing before Pilate. Beneath the painting were these words, this I have done for you. What are you going to do for me? So the drawing that came on Zinzendorf that kind of set the pattern for his life was a drawing that came out of the consideration of the Lord's suffering. And again, at another point, God speaks to him about, will you turn away from my suffering? And so God begins to work on him when he's a very young man. And so, um, I implore my Savior to draw me with force. This became his prayer. I therefore implore my Savior to draw me with force. I just decided to make that my prayer. Uh, draw me with force into the partnership of his sufferings. Oh, God. Even if my mind struggles against it, draw me with force into this partnership. The scripture says if we fellowship with him in his sufferings, we will share with him in his glory. That doesn't mean when you go to heaven and they ring the bell and say, here's your reward, friend. Here's some glory for you because you suffered. That means like in the now and now. When death is working in us, life is working in other people. When, God's, when we embrace the things that are suffering, and we embrace his suffering and don't turn our face away, there's a death to us, and it is a humility. It humbles us. And in that place of humility, the life of the Holy Spirit also can be made manifested. And the fragrance of life to life can be coming out of us like something crushed that's producing a fragrance. So, um, then God began to move on his heart. And so, he, in this state of prayer and, and consecration of himself, he decided to take his inheritance 
and purchase the estate at Berthelsdorf from his grandmother because he saw in his heart he wanted to see a Christian community. He wanted to build a Christian community, so he took his money, bought an estate from his grandmother, and though he was, through eyes of faith, he saw there was just empty fields there, but in his eyes of faith, he saw this community for the Lord. So he appointed a pious Andrew Roth as the pastor of the Lutheran church that was at Berthelsdorf and commissioned him saying, I bought this estate because I wanted to spend my life among the peasants. Now remember, this is an aristocratic feller. He's like Poldark, I guess, of Poldark of the Moravians. I bought this estate because I wanted to spend my life among the peasants and win their souls for Christ. So go, Roth. Go to the vineyard of the Lord. You will find me a brother and a helper there rather than a patron. You'll find me to be to you, Roth, a brother and a helper. I will not be your patron. So he made these commitments, and he said himself that I'm going to use the advantage I have for, the, for Jesus Christ. I'm going to partner with his suffering. He was not seeking to build his kingdom or boast in a position or authority. If we are to see revival, we've got to come humbling ourselves. And that's what he did. He had uh, means. He could have done many things. But he, he chose to make a place for peasants. Okay. And win their souls for Jesus. In 1722, he built a mansion on the estate that he called Bethel, the house of God. And he opened his home for all those who came on Sunday afternoon to have Bible studies. And so pretty soon a settler came and entered Berthelsdorf, and his name was Christian David. He was from Moravia. These Protestants in Moravia, they were uh, very persecuted people. Do you remember Wycliffe, that he was killed? And uh, this, his, the person who came behind him was Hus, H-U-S, I guess I'm saying that right. If I'm not, just yell at me, Pastor. Uh, <laughs> and so he came uh, in that tradition, and these reformers, I mean, they were just like being persecuted by the Catholics. You realize at this time, there was, it was not a happy day. People were, were getting burned at the stake and dying, so... Um, so this uh, Moravians begin with this in the 14th century, the working of Wycliffe. And so then this other fellow, Hus, Hus, uh, would make a stand like Wycliffe against the corruption of the church for which he was burned at the stake. But his followers, Hus's followers, the Moravians, they continued. And so, however, they would have fierce persecution. There were at one point 400,000 of them, and they were persecuted down to a very much smaller number. By the time the 1700s came, and Christian David came, and the people started coming from Moravia to be on this estate in this Christian community. Um, so... Um, David brought uh, some refugees, and they found an old, unfinished farmhouse, and Zinzendorf let them stay in it. And Zinzendorf's wife was uh, sick. and uh, No, David's wife was sick. Excuse me, Christian David. His wife was sick. And so he asked the Lord, if you heal my wife, I'll go back to Moravia for more uh, of these peasants. And the Lord healed her. <laughs> And so he, d he immediately set out to go back to Moravia. And so over the next four years, the community grew to about 400 people. The first uh, number that came was 10. 
There were 10 refugees in the first ones that came. And then uh, they formed a community in Hernhut that they called the Lord's Watch, which is, Hernhut means the Lord's Watch. And so they formed that on June 17th, 1722. Then over the next four years, there's four, they grow to like 400 people. They worked together. They built a school. They built a medical building. Does this sound familiar? These Moravians, as it were said, were converts that came out of the ministry of Hus, who was burned at the stake. And so their last bishop that they had was Comenius. And he's the one who did writing about uh, children because these people have notable things about children that happened with them. Anyway, Comenius, who escaped to Holland at the persecution, prophesied before that a remnant would be a hidden seed that would grow into a fruitful tree. So he prophesied over them that they would be a hidden seed that would grow into a fruitful tree. And that came to pass with those people when they got over into uh, um, Berthelsdorf. So here the people have come. There's like 400 of them. And then Zinzendorf made this intent. He expressed this intent. I want to be used among these people to bring revival. Well, you know, God's moving. He'll probably hit us. I mean, if it's running down the interstate, we're close. (laughs) What we get from God, we get by intention. And so he intentionally expressed, I want to be used among these people to bring revival. Though I may lose my property, this was the commitment he made, though I may lose my property, my honor, and my life in the cause as long as I live and as far as I am able, this flock of the Lord shall be preserved for him until he comes. So he was intending I'm committing here, and I want to bring these people to revival. I intend to do that, he said. So the community became a vehicle of, uh, of Zinzendorf's adolescent pledge that he made to the Lord to preach the gospel to every creature. He'd made a pledge as a young uh, adolescent, as an adolescent, to make, preach the gospel to every creature. Uh, so they're in the community and then this is what happens (laughs) before the revival the word of the Hernhut community spread and persecuted Christians started coming from various denominations Anabaptists, which are now Mennonites, Calvinists, Separatists, and even Catholics. The mixed breed of malcontents caused dissension to arise. They started arguing doctrine and things. The po- as poverty crept in at the door, love flew out the window. <laughs> yeah, more people's coming. They're different people, and they start forgetting about the love thing. As the turmoil grew, along came a man by the name of Johannes Kruger. Kruger was a leader, and he caused a great division. The enemy is always seeking to kill the work of God with a spirit of division, always. That's his, that's his bag. And so Kruger, a messenger of the enemy, announced that he was divinely appointed of God to reform Zinzendorf, and he called him the beast. And Roth, the pastor that was set in there, he called him the false prophet. And y'all know that we've been called all kinds of names through the years of different things of people 
come and then like, oh, you're this or you're that. Kruger attacked the various leaders and calling the Lutherans, no bet, because he wasn't a Lutheran, he called the Lutherans no better than a den of thieves. So he's like um, just creating dissent and division. And so during these five years that this is growing and developing, and the community is growing, and all this mixed bag of people are coming with different doctrines and that sort of thing, Zinzendorf had not paid that much attention to it. He'd given them a place to live, and he was going on about other things. He was not, had not paid a lot of attention to the refugees. He had official duties in Dresden, was a king's counselor. It's because he was an aristocratic person, so he had to do his thing. And so he made it clear. He started addressing the division where they were. The Anabaptists were saying this. Uh, the Catholics were saying something else. The Lutherans were saying something else. There were separatists there. And so he's, he made them all agree to the Augsburg Confession. He made them all agree to one confession of faith. And so this is before the revival. He said, enough of this. If you're going to be here, you're going to need to agree to this confession of faith. To put this division to an end. At the critical point, he intervened. And changed the duel that was happening among those people to a duet. <laughs> he said, I will have no makers of sex on this estate. Not sex, sex. CTS. <laughs> With all their faults, he believed that this, his settlers were a bottom brought at bottom at the core a broad-minded people only clear away the rubbish and the gold would be underneath so he came in and took action to clear the rubbish and get a single focus for them what uh what he was requiring of of them to be there um and so after this point in time on may 12th this is leading up to the revival, which happened in August. On May 12th, he summons them to a meeting and preached three hours. Okay. Uh, he preached three hours on the sin of schisms. Is that the way you say it? Schisms. 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 You're British. You don't care. Uh, <laughs> you have schedules. Yes. <laughs> preach the truth. Jesus, preach the truth. Jesus stood up against these uh, righteous Pharisees and hypocrites with truth. And so Zinzendorf just preached the truth. Three hours he preached the truth and told them no more of this deciding all these various things you're going to believe. If you're on this estate, if you're living here, if you've sought refuge here, you're going to adhere to the, this truth of God, which I'm sure was a basic Lutheran uh, thing. So then after that, he took leave of his assignment at Dresden and came back and organized a church within the church at Herrenhut. He created a pact that he called the Brotherly Union and Compact. And so on the fourth day of July of that year, he called, uh, drew up this covenant, and he had them all sign it in the brotherly union and the compact. So he was just laboring toward singleness of mind and purpose and unity uh, for them. And so on the fourth of uh, July, he called them together to sign the whole place represented a physical tabernacle of God among men. After they made this decision that they were going to adhere to, to a 
true a doc, one doctrine. They weren't going to have all these divisions and sex and, and that sort of thing. Uh, then the atmosphere started shifting and changing. For the next few months in the city, this city was a city on a hill, is what Zinzendorf said. And the very men who had lately quarreled with each other now formed little groups for prayer and praise. And so these little small groups, they, the Moravians called them bands, B-A-N-D-S, or that's where the Methodists got their idea for the societies. And these bands, they did them by gender, and so there might be a half a dozen uh, people, maybe less, maybe four, five, six, people that were in a band, and they bound together for prayer and confession. They walked in the light with each other in that band. Uh, men had groups. Women had groups. They did not seg segregate, uh, integrate the groups. They were segregated by gender. During the next period, Zinzendorf spent much time in prayer. In fact, on August the 5th, they held an all-night prayer meeting. So they were intensifying. They were in making intent. They're making intent to unify with, with doctrine and to unify every way they could, and they were making intent to increase prayer. They made intent to walk in the light with each other and not create divisions with each other. So, on 13th day of August, 1727, so you see this is built up over a space of time, that they're taking action. He's calling for certain things, and they're just leaning into it. On 13th of August, 1727, Pastor Roth called for a special communion ser service at Berthelsdorf. This is what Zinzendorf wrote of the event. We needed to come to the communion with a sense of loving nearness of the Savior. This was a great comfort, which was made this day a generation ago to be a festival. Because of this day, they turned it into a festival. Twenty-seven years ago, the congregation at Heronhood, he's writing this later, of course, all assembled for communion and were all dissatisfied. They assembled for communion. They didn't come like, oh, God, with thinking they were wonderful and they didn't come with uh, major expectations of what's going to happen because this had never happened before, frankly. Not quite like this. And so, <laughs> oh, Jesus. Uh, and so... They had quit judging each other because they had become convinced, each one, of his lack of worth in the sight of God. And each felt himself at this communion to be in the view of the noble countenance of the Savior. So when they came to the communion, they quit biting on each other, and each one was facing their own where they were. And so they came and they viewed themselves humbly standing in front of the Savior when they came to the communion that day. We learned, said the brethren, to love from that day onward. Heronhood was a living church of Jesus Christ. Zinzendorf was 27 years old on the 13th of August, 1727. He was 27 years old, which was the average age of the people in the community. I always thought, thought of them as like, oh, older, I don't know why. I don't know why, I just always do. But uh, I want you to know that he was 27 years old. At this communion service, he read the confession. And as he did, everyone was touched in a very powerful way. The Holy Spirit was poured out. Pastor Roth fell to the floor 
overwhelmed by the Spirit, and the people began praying, singing, and weeping. And this continued until midnight. We saw the hand of God and his wonders, and we were all under the cloud. The Holy Ghost came upon us in those days with great signs and wonders that took place in our midst. So what they were doing was endeavoring to put right things that are obvious things that are hindrances, criticalness, division, uh, the thing in us that we're... They're endeavoring to put those things right. Where, where what we believe to be true is more important than the person in front of us. Where our perception of what is a right thing or a true thing or whatever becomes more important than the love for people. And they were, tr they were endeavoring throughout from May the 12th then July the 4th, then August the 5th, they were each piece endeavoring to advance on their intent to end the things that were tearing them apart. I love the Lord. He's come to me with a fire of intercession that I have not, I don't know that I've ever known it that um, oh, I guess it was yesterday the Lord moved on me in prayer and intercession with such great strength. It was, I don't know, it was later in the day before. I couldn't get out of it. I couldn't move myself beyond uh, the groaning and crying and yearning and fire of God and that is the spirit of supplication, grace and supplication. It's the spirit of judgment and burning. It's a working of the Holy Spirit. And I promise you, when God is going to move, what he does is he starts doing that to people. This, who, I can't remember who said it. Pastor will remember that. When God, Edwin Orr, when God is getting ready to do a work, he sets his people praying. Self-love and self-will, as well as all disobedience, disappeared, and an overwhelming flood of grace swept out into swept us out into a great ocean of divine love. You know, I listened to Randy Clark. I'm kind of listened to him a lot, and I listened to him on a thing with uh, uh, about testimonies. I was just listening to testimonies, watching testimonies, and he just said, testimony. Testimony is an invitation for God to do it again. Pam Manix, she's not here, but I won't give her a testimony. She can give it later. Uh, she watched, it wasn't the one uh, that I'd been watching. She watched a uh, uh, a thing of Randy Clark. He started now. He shows videos of testimonies from around the world. So he sh was showing a video of a testimony. And Pam had been told by the eye doctor she had a wrinkle in the retina of her eye. And she had a place, a fuzzy place in her eye she couldn't see. And she said when she was listening to this testimony <laughs> that she felt... I can't remember. She said warmth or whatever. She felt something. She felt moved on. And her eye cleared up. <clears throat> so read testimonies about God moving. This promise is over us. I will pour. I will pour. <clears throat> on the 17th day of August, this is four days after, 
four days after the communion service on the 17th day of August, the Holy Spirit was poured out on the children at Aaronhood. Somehow I don't I've read this stuff before. I've you know, eaten it. We lived and ate and breathed it for a long time, but somehow it was so new to me that four days after that communion service, the Holy Spirit poured out on the children at Hernhut. They began a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week prayer meeting, and this is what started the 100-year prayer meeting. It was the children at Hernhut that were had the Spirit poured on them on the 17th day of August, on a given day, Holy Spirit poured. The prayer meeting started by the children would last 100 years. As the children came and bowed their knees to the Father, soon the parents began to join them. The children, this is the account, the children of both sexes, felt a powerful impulse to pray. And it was impossible to listen to their infant supplications without being deeply moved. The spirit of grace and supplication poured out upon the children so powerful that it was impossible to give an adequate description of it in words. In the Moravian community, that they had an elder. I don't remember her last name. Anna, Anna, Anna was her first name. She was 14 years old, and she was an elder of the community. By virtue of how the Spirit poured, by the mark of the Holy Spirit, 14 years old, God Almighty, let this burn in you, God. Their infant supplications, listening to them. On August the 26th, 24 men and 24 women covenanted together to continue praying one hour each day. And soon the group increased. So then that's what started it. And this watch of the Lord that went a hundred years. started with the spirit being poured on the children oh god this prayer was not something that was monastic in nature that they cloistered though they were cloistered for their safety and they were in community together the prayer caused the burden of heaven to arise in the hearts of the people. You can't pray long till you start being free of your burden and start getting hold of the burden of God. And so there's an exchange, this kind of spirit prayer. True prayer changes us. It changes us because it causes an exchange of our burden for his burden. And... In prayer, you know, I'm sure you guys have experienced this, but we'll ex- experience it more and more. And new people will be doing this. People will be experiencing this. Younger people will be experiencing the outpouring of the Spirit. The children filled with God will have the burden of God for this world so that we will not be just trying to work out some spiritual thing and... Uh, do something in the natural the spirit will propel our hearts where he wants us to go and be and so i don't know how many uh, aristocrats we have here who are willing to <laughs> like you know, <laughs> who are willing to lay down their uh <laughs> their aristocracy to see that peasants come to know Christ. But this embracing the Lord's suffering set this in motion. This didn't happen by accident. When God is drawing you and coming to you and dealing with you and working on you, yield, say yes, lean in. You do not know what kind of difference it will make in a circumstance. 
you don't know what kind of fire and power of the Holy Spirit in prayer will come into your heart. You do not know how he will burn in you if you don't turn your face away from his suffering and his desire. This small church here at Heronhood, in 20 years, called into being more missions than the whole of the evangelical church had done in 200 years. I will pour out. It shall come to pass, I will pour. In fact, within 39 years, 266 Moravian missionaries had been scattered around the world. And this is what they based their prayer on, the prayer group. It's Leviticus 6, 13. Let me read it. Oh, I moved. I have to use this Bible. Oh, Jesus. I hate it when I cry. I want to invent an automatic clean, uh, thing that takes mucus out of your nose. You could suck it into your ear or down your throat or something. So when you're speaking... You don't snivel and carry on like some nasty thing. Um, Leviticus 6.13. I'll start with verse 12. Leviticus 6.12. And the fire on the altar. God. And the fire on the altar will be kept burning on it. It shall not be put out. And the priest shall burn wood on it every morning and lay the burnt offering on it. And he shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings, and the fire shall always be burning on the altar. It shall never go out. That is the picture of what God does with his fire. I pray that as he pours out the fire of his love on us, and as he pours out the fire of his desire for the nations on us, that that fire will light in us in a way that it will never go out. That there'll be a, a working in us that um, tends, tends the fire. Mm. Every revival through history is un unique. But there has never been a great revival without great prayer. We're asking God to move, so we're going to increase prayer. We're got, you don't have to be some great person. You just have to walk in a unity of heart and yield yourself to prayer. We're going to do this because God's drawing us to pray. He's going to burn, burn in us until we're really... Uh, praying with a greater intensity. In this revival, there was not just the working where there was uh, dealing with disunity. They dealt with the dead formalism of their church. And there was birthed in this a spirit of worship. Praise, worship. The writer of this essay, whose name I forgot, <laughs> I'm very sorry, uh, said in the 1932 edition of the Methodist Hymnal, 1932 edition of the Methodist Hymnal, were these words, Methodism was born in song. John Wesley, while on his way to America, I'll read this story of what stirred him so about song and Charles Wesley. John Wesley, while on his way to America from England to minister to the Native Americans, learned German. So he could, on the journey, communicate with the Moravians. And in fact, he wrote his whole in his journal on October the 19th, 1735, singing with the Germans. John Wesley wanted to learn their secret. He watched them praise the Lord in the fiercest of storms at sea. We've heard this story many times. He wrote 
of them they are a people who have given up all their all to their master and they have learned from him to be modest and lowly dead to the world full of faith and of the holy spirit charles wesley who met peter bowler another moravian bowler said to wesley concerning praise or song if i had a thousand tongues I would praise Jesus with every one of them. If I had a thousand tongues, I'd praise Jesus with every one of them. And Charles Wesley wrote, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Uh. So, in summary... True unity is built upon humility. And the formalism of the church went out the window when the Spirit poured. Because praise thanksgiving praise worship was born by the pouring out of the spirit the moravians started off as a broken people seeking to survive they were running from the enemy does it sound like anybody you know the moravians started off as a broken people seeking to survive they were running from the enemy they became a people who were overcomers that now ran to the battle to take back what the enemy stole. They reversed from running from to running to. They went from the defensive onto the offensive by, it shall come to pass that I will pour. Are you broken and running from a past? <laughs> hey! <laughs> It's time to find sanctuary in God's presence. Hallelujah. The keys that they learned, I'll just end with this. Uh, these people were sold out to the Lord. And their lives were committed to reaching the lost because they, they were sold out to the Lord. They received his suffering. They partnered with him in suffering. They set up a printing press to print the Bible. They weren't just sitting around like praying all the time. They set up a printing press to print the Bible. They worked 16 hours a day. The Christian tracts and hymnals, they printed. They became voices influencing others for Christ. The keys they learned... These were the three principles that they were to live by. Jesus gave his life as a ransom for sin. They understood the sacrifice that Jesus made and the power of his blood. One of the things that the traditional churches do that in more advanced church life, we might think, well, that's not anything. They literally focus on his suffering. They consider it. They think about it in prayer. They're thinking about the elements of his suffering. And uh, these people gave them themselves to understand the sacrifice that Jesus had made and the power that was in the blood of that sacrifice. Don't turn your face away from the fact that he suffered. Let yourself just look. Jesus was the perfect example for them to follow. We fix our eyes on him. He's the author of our faith and, he, faith, and he is the one that will bring it to maturity. That's the second thing they learned. And the third thing, Jesus was present with them as the head of the church. If they could just understand that he was the head of the church and it was his church, oh, what a difference it made. For these people, they went all over the world because he was telling them, you go here, send this person here, uh, sell yourself into slavery in the Indies. 
go, go do these things. He was directing them. Jesus being head over all things to the church is that he wants to direct us into his harvest. His desire is to speak and direct. Remember in uh, um, Acts, where they were at the church at Antioch, and they were fasting and praying, and the Spirit said, Separate to me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. And so then they fasted some more, and then they put their hands on them, and they sent them out. And because the Spirit directed the Lord, said, I want Paul. And you would think, Paul, I don't, I don't get Jesus about this, but I think it's pretty sweet. Paul was a very strong Jewish uh, student. He'd sat at Gamaliel, and Jesus didn't send him to the Jews. He sent the dumb fishermen and sent Paul to the Gentiles. He said, Lord, what? Oh, that promise. It shall come to pass that I will pour it out. I will pour. It shall come to pass that I will pour. When you get up to pray or when you're praying, just remind yourself of that and remind the Lord. Lord, you promised that you would pour, pour on me. You promised that you would pour, pour on my family. You promised that you would pour, pour on my children. And... Oh, Jesus, thank you, Lord. I'm not going to say anything else. I love you guys. And so I just want to encourage you to read and, and take these things in because that is the thing that stirs that hunger. It stirs the longing. It really does. I could hardly read when I first read that with the, the account that said that the infant supplications of these children, you couldn't hear them without being deeply moved. And that there were no words to express what the children were like praying. We experienced that a little bit of that here in 1980. In when God moved in among us in 1980. But Lord, we're just asking you, according to that promise, pour it out. Lord, pour. Pour. Pour on us a spirit of grace and a spirit of supplication. For the things we desire for prayer, pour more, Lord. Make us praying with more fervency. Do what you do, Lord, where you call forth those that are going to be praying into the thing that you're going to do. We don't know what it is, and we don't know when it will come, and we can't say all these things. We do not know. But we do know when we feel the burning and the longing and the desire and the hunger. And we're asking you, I'm asking you now, and we're asking you to pour on us, to pour out your spirit in this house, to pour out your spirit on individuals one by one by one. In Jesus' name, thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I love you guys.